0: Well, I want to encourage you to open a Bible, if you have one with you, to the 15th chapter of Mark's Gospel, and I'm going to read to you uh, from verse 16 in just a couple of moments as we um, continue in the narrative of the last moments of the Lord Jesus' life on earth uh, before his death upon the cross. Now, we've had the enormous privilege of walking alongside the Lord Jesus Christ in these final moments before his crucifixion. As we've been with him in the Passover meal with his disciples, the Lord's Supper, we've been with him in the Garden of Gethsemane as he opened up his heart to the Father and said, not my will, but your will be done. We've been with him in front of the, uh, the religious authorities in Caiaphas's house as they questioned him and beat him, and then we've been with him as he was dragged before Pilate, the Roman governor, and cross-examined and then handed over uh, for scourging the flailing with the whip, the Roman whip. Prior to um, his actual crucifixion, and as we come now into this next section of Mark's Gospel, we're actually here at the moment at which Jesus is crucified, and so we reach this kind of central moment in the biblical story, and in in fact in all of history, a a a moment that has changed the world and that has significance that resonates with us to this present moment, like no other event in history, before or since. And so we're really coming to a kind of holy place, just as Moses uh, constructed the tabernacle, and at the, the heart of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. I have a sense that when we're reading a passage like this, and we're coming to that moment at which this sacrifice of the Lord's life upon the cross is given, we're really coming to the Holy of Holies. We're coming to a part in Scripture that is almost too profound for words and for our understanding and yet it is relayed to us in the simplest of terms. And I want to read to you from verse 16 then of, of Mark 15. It says this. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him In a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passer-by, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, it was nine o'clock in the morning, when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now what is the significance of this account of the crucifixion of Jesus that Mark gives to us? And I think that at one level, of course, it reads as a very simple telling, retelling, a simple narrative of events that took place, of the crucifixion of Jesus, his dressing up in a robe and his crown of thorns that's put on him, the beating and the spitting, and eventually the actual action of crucifying him, of nailing him to a cross where he would have been hung for the passers-by to see him until his life has expired from his body. And of course, at one sense, it is just simply the retelling. But in another sense, something very extraordinary is taking place in, these, uh, in this relatively short account. And what I mean is to, say, to say is this, that in, in a sense, what Mark manages to do here in not many verses at all, is to capture and to relay to us a snapshot that in in many senses captures the entire biblical story, the entire biblical worldview in the narrative of Scripture as it pertains to humanity and to God in a relatively short scope here. And I think as I meditated upon this passage, it struck me that in many senses this is rather like some of the very famous um, photographs that have become iconic uh, from the last century that for their own reasons captured particular moments in history and evoked all the emotions and the politics and the, and, the, and the various conflicting ideologies that were present at the time those particular photographs were taken. I think, for example, of a very famous photo from 1972 of was then a young girl called Kim Phuc who was a Vietnamese girl who I actually had the privilege of speaking when she was grown up as a, a woman And uh, she, in that particular year, in 1972, was captured in this photograph running along a street fleeing her village in southern Vietnam that had been taken over by northern Vietnamese, the communist troops. And the southern Vietnamese air force had bombed the village with napalm, that um, burning flammable liquid that that would uh, eviscerate um, villages and all their surroundings. And she, along with many others, had fled the village and all her clothes had been burned and, she, and uh, she, was, she was naked and unclothed and running towards the journalist who took this photo. And it became iconic because it captured in that moment not just the barbarity of war, but the uh, injustice of the fallout, the way that this particular war was touching ordinary lives and the lives of innocents like these children who uh, were killed, very often killed, and this particular woman only narrowly escaped, escaped with her life. And so the, the photo printed on the New York Times the very next day uh, really brought, uh, brought home the tragedy of that particular conflict and the things that were taking place in Vietnam at the time. I think also of another example of this, which was that in, in 1989, very famous photograph also, of the man who's simply known as the Tank Man in Tiananmen Square, unknown to this day, anonymous, we, we have no idea who he was, But there he was, the day before the the Chinese uh, Communist government had quelled the protest in Tiananmen Square, the student protest, and then this following day as this column of tanks, these enormous tanks, were rolling into the square, this one man with two shopping bags, um, holds them up and stands in front of the tanks and dialogues with the pilot, the, the driver of the lead tank for some time and this was captured on video and there was a f- there's a photograph of it of course which has gone down in history as is- really symbolic of so much more of what was taking place in that particular moment, of the brutality of a despotic regime seeking to quell and to crush all dissent, of the bravery of an oppressed, uh, oppressed people and particularly this one man representing the weakness of an oppressed people in opposition to a great oppressive regime. And of course, therefore, in one particular photo, a mere second in time captured on film, you have so much more that that is evoked and brought to mind because of a photograph. And you can think of how this is true of both of the pictures I've just mentioned, which I'm sure that you're familiar with. Another example of this, of course, and perhaps my favorite example, is what took place in 1936. Now, this, of course, is three years before uh, the the Germans invaded Poland and the Second World War. Began, But at the time Hitler had risen to power on the back of this kind of nationalist rhetoric, this, this idea of reclaiming German greatness and particularly of his message around the greatness of the Aryan people as he described these northern Europeans and uh, of the, of the, the uh, supremacy over other races and particularly over the Jewish people. And Hitler's message had taken and gripped the minds and hearts of the German people to a large extent, of course not not completely, but had gripped many of them. And it was Germany's turn to host the Berlin Olympics in 1936. And because this was before war had broken out, there were still peaceful relations between nations. And so many nations descended upon Berlin in that particular year with their various athletic teams competing uh, together. And of course, the most famous of all was is the fact that one particular man absolutely scuppered the competition, won four gold medals, and there's a photo of him on the, the podium receiving his gold medal, and behind him uh, is is the white uh, German uh, athlete who is saluting with the Nazi salute in the silver medal. P- uh, position and the irony of it, of course, is that he stood behind a black man, Jesse Owens, the winner of four Olympic gold medals, and so even as as this German athlete is honoring everything that uh, the Nazis stood for. It, it, the image, of course, preaches a different message, the ridiculousness of the notion of, this particular, of the supremacy of, of the Aryan people being beaten, as they were, by this African-American, this man Jesse Owens, who absolutely annihilated his competition. And so you can think of these particular images, different snapshots in history which capture a moment and all the swirling ideologies and the conflicts that are taking place at that particular time. And when we read this particular account of what happened around the crucifixion, I want to suggest that I think something very similar is happening here. Of course, it's given to us in words rather than through images. But what Mark manages to do within the scope of a few short verses is to paint for us really the the biblical story in terms of the condition of humanity, man's hatred and hostility towards God, and the tragic irony of that situation. but then also of God's wonderful patience and mercy towards man. And I want to help you to see how I think all of this is portrayed for us and the significance of these particular facts as they relate to us in these few short moments. I begin then with the way that Mark puts across to us the hostility of humans, uh, the hostility of our rebellion against uh, against the living God and the way in which we hate him and the way in which this is put across to us in Mark's account here. Now, here's how I think we can see this. Consider with me for a second, what is the suffering that Mark is interested in here? What is it that he exposes for us in the suffering of the Lord Jesus in these moments? And it's actually quite surprising, because against our expectations, he pays very little attention to the physical suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's there, but really only as a passing references. For example, in verse 15, which we read last week, it says, having scourged Jesus, he, that's Pilate, delivered him to be crucified. Now, you'd be forgiven for not realizing what a brutal and barbaric thing that was, that the Roman whip, which had um, various strands of leather with pieces of metal um, weaved into the leather strands, was, f- was, was whipped across his back and so flayed his skin and tore it open. So even in just a couple of words, what Mark has, has told us is something extremely brutal, extremely physical, extremely bloody that has taken place already, and this is before the crucifixion. So brutal was this pain that as Jesus is encouraged to carry his own cross or maybe just the cross beam, beam the particulum, which was um, then attached to the vertical uh, aspect of the cross, he's unable to carry it. Whether it's through the shock of pain or through the amount of blood loss, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is so weakened by the experience that he's already gone through that we're told how Simon of Cyrene, this man, this passerby, is encouraged to, or compelled actually, to help Jesus carry this cross. And then, of course, Mark tells us in the briefest of words that they sim- he just tells us they crucified him. And really what's concealed there is, again, the brutality of that, how Jesus was nailed through his hands and through his feet, and therefore his entire body weight hanging on these, these nails that were pinning him to the cross. And, of course, the reason why they nailed the feet of of those who were crucified was in order that they wouldn't suffocate to death as they're hanging from their arms and they'd have to pull themselves up in order to breathe and the only way he could maintain strength was to have weight on the feet but every time he pushes himself up through his feet in order to take a breath of course the pain must have racked through his feet as that great iron nail was driven through it and all of this is concealed to us we know this because of history but none of it is particularly given much attention and you wonder why is that the case I think Partly the answer is because Mark's readers already knew these things. They were familiar with Roman um, Roman practices. They knew how the Romans executed their criminals and their traitors and so on. I think that's one reason. I think another reason is that Mark is not seeking to pursue artistry in the telling of this account. He's not, an, he's not a, a novelist and he doesn't want to put across the idea that he's He's, he's embellishing any of this. Rather, he's just telling us in a journalistic sense, in a factual sense, the things that took place. And for all these reasons, it seems that he doesn't really pay much attention to the physical suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't really pay much attention to his spiritual suffering either, in the sense of the agonies that the Lord went through in his being forsaken, as it were, by the Father, um, as the, the anger of the Father is poured out upon him on the cross. We know that some of this has come through in the way that Jesus has experienced the agony of soul in Gethsemane, the garden where he prayed the night, in the moments before he was arrested. We know also that in a few moments, in the next passage, he'll cry out, Eloi Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So all of this is present, but it's not prominent. And so I'm, what I'm wanting you to see then is, well, in all of Mark's telling, what is it that he wants to make prominent? If he's not interested in the physical suffering, if he's not interested so much in the spiritual agonies of Christ, what is he putting before our eyes? What is he, as it were, as the photographer, capturing the scene? How does he frame the scene? And the answer that seems obvious when you begin to consider what we read here is that he's most interested in the suffering that Jesus endured in terms of the mockery and the scorn and the derision and the rejection from humans, from mankind from the people who were present on that day. And so he relays it to us in a number of different little cameos of what's taking place here. We read, first of all, about the soldiers. It tells us that a whole battalion had gathered for this event, which was about 600 men. Here's the one man, the lone man, Jesus Christ, and a battalion of soldiers around him. And what do they do? They start to mock him. They dress him in purple as though... Um, he's, he, you know, to mock his claim to royalty, and they put this crown of thorns on him for the same purpose. And they kneel in this kind of mock homage to him, and they say, "Hail, King of the Jews!" And you can imagine the laughter and the scorn that's being poured upon him. They beat him at the same time with a rod across his head, and they, 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 they are. It's, Mark just keeps telling us how they absolutely reject and mock him, even as they are doing these things. The soldiers do it. The same. Thing happens with the passers by. They say, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Here's a man suffering and the agony of death, and just people walking past. You think what brutality of spirit was present there that they they treat him in this way. The religious authorities also make the most of the moment when they say he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Of course, this is their moment of victory. They were envious of him, they despised him. And so this is the moment at which they finally have dealt with the problem of Jesus. Now that they can see him hanging on this cross, the job is done, and they can go home at peace and at rest and enjoy the rest of their day because finally the problem that is Jesus is dealt with. And just a capital, Mark also tells us about how the two men. Crucified on either side of him, these robbers, it says they also reviled him. Now we know from Luke's telling that one of them had a change of heart later on. But Mark just wants us to pay attention to the fact that every single encounter Jesus experiences here is one of absolute mockery, derision, scorn, rejection, this horrible, horrible treatment that he experienced. And what I want you to to ask with me is, well why? Why is he interested in this mockery? Why is it that that he wants us to see? And the answer is not so that we can pity Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ does not need our pity. We know that he went to the cross voluntarily in the sense that he submitted himself to the events that were to take place in these particular moments. And so it's not out of pity that Mark tells us these things, nor is it so that we, as onlookers as it were, on this scene can stand in judgment. And, and feel a kind of superiority against the people who treat him in this way, whether it's the soldiers or the passers-by or the religious authorities and so on. It's not so that we, looking on, can feel a sense of superiority and think how wonderful we are, because the Bible would never let you get away with that way of thinking, that kind of self-righteousness. Really, what's being captured here is actually the condition of the human heart and of mankind in general, I believe. and What Mark wants us to see here is that this captures for us the great battle, the great war that man has waged against God from the beginning of history, the war that exists in the heart of every human when we're not reconciled to God, so that even if you think you're better than them, you're not, because the same murderous intent, the same hatred, the same rebellion, the same anger, the same mockery exists in every heart that hasn't been reconciled to the living God. And so you might object and say, well, how can this story tell us all of that? Because here we have these people mocking Jesus precisely because they think he's not God. And so it doesn't seem to be telling us the story of man's hatred against God. If anything, these people think they're zealous for God, some of them at least. But actually that's to misunderstand this entirely. The reason why I say that is because Jesus Christ was the revelation of God. And Jesus put this very succinctly when in John chapter 15, he said that whoever hates me hates my father also. He goes on and and opens that up a little bit more in the verses that follow, but those words will suffice. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ was the revelation of God. All that the Father is was revealed in and through the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his character and purity and goodness and truth and beauty and all of these things. And these are the very things that the people of the time had grown to hate within Jesus. So when they, in the, as they hate the Lord Jesus Christ and as they mock him and deride him on this, in this particular occasion when he's crucified, really what's being expressed here is the hatred that exists within the human heart, the hatred against God himself. And I want to describe that as a kind of desire for deicide, the desire to kill God, which is fundamentally the root issue at the heart of every sin that we ever commit. It's the desire to say, God, I wish you were dead. And I think that this is what Mark captures for us. C.S. Lewis painted this picture in his story of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe very well when he described that moment of which Aslan, who is in a sense representative of Jesus, gives his life in place of of Edmund. And as he submits himself to the White Witch and her kind of demonic horde of wicked creatures, and they finally feel that they've gained supremacy over him, the first thing they do is they shave him of his mane. And so humiliate him. And then they begin to mock him and this kind of scorn is poured on him and they say things like this. They say, why? He's only a great cat after all. Is that what we were afraid of? And would you like a saucer of milk? And C.S. Lewis was trying to put across to us the same kind of demonic inspired hatred that existed in the enemies of Aslan. It's the same thing that was taking place at the cross here. This is humankind. This is our nature. This is who we are being expressed for us in a snapshot and so the great war of the cosmos between God and the evil forces that oppose him is captured for us here in a few short verses as Mark describes the mockery and the way in which this hatred of God comes to its climax in the expression of scorn against Jesus here that's what Mark wants us to see it's what God wants us to see also but this brings me to another insight, I think, that comes through on the back of that. Which is Mark also is painting for us the picture of the tragedy and the irony of this hostility and of this rebellion against God. And here's what I mean by this. At one level, we as readers can just see how totally tragic this is, that they should hate Jesus. Jesus has come into the world in order to save the world in order to do good. And he went about doing good and being kind and full of compassion and healing the sick and tending to those who had need. And yet here he is being brutally killed. And we can see the tragedy of this. And it's a little bit like, if I can use an an illustration here to just try and explain to you what this is like. It's like how if you were to be in need of an organ transplant, whether it be a kidney or a heart transplant or a lung transplant or any of these things which can be life-saving treatment. When someone dies and that organ is taken out their body and put into yours, the first thing that your body wants to do is to attack and kill that organ. Your body understands it to be a foreign object, just like any other parasite or infection that might invade your body. And so the immune system gets to work to try and kill this thing and destroy it. And if left to its own devices, it will succeed. And in destroying the organ, your body will also then kill itself, of course. The only way this can be controlled is through the application of immunosuppressants, these medicines designed to suppress the immune system and to stop it from attacking the organ. But otherwise, that picture holds up for me in the sense that this is exactly what we're seeing here. The Son of God takes on flesh. He enters the world. He comes in to be the sacrifice for our sins. And what does the world do? There's this this kind of inevitable, inevitable reaction. This reaction that makes sense when you think about the darkness of the human heart and the way that sin has gained prevalence over us. The way that sin has taken hold of us and caused us to be so estranged from God. So that when we see the light, we hate it. As soon as light enters the world, as soon as the love of God enters the world, we react against it. There's this kind of natural and inevitable immune response where eventually it rises to this climactic moment where, of course, the world overthrows the Son of God, as it were, by brutally putting him to death. And Mark is showing us the tragedy of this, but it's more than just tragedy. It's also an ironic situation. There's a kind of tragic irony about it. And the reason why I put it to you in those words is because all these mocking statements actually unknowingly and unwittingly confess truth about Jesus at the very time that he's being mocked and scorned and attacked. Here he is, the Lord of glory, the most exalted human, who has ever lived, because he is God in human flesh. I remind you of the words at the beginning of John's Gospel, as the story of Jesus is introduced by the Apostle John. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and he means before time, and the Word, this is Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God. So he describes for us the eternal nature of the Son of God. He existed before any of creation. Then it says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he says a bit later, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what we believe about Jesus. Here is the Son of God, the eternal Word, who took on flesh and entered. This is what the Christmas story is in fact all about the way in which God took on human flesh and came into our dark world. But at the same time, what we are reading here in Mark's account is of these various ways that these people speak more truly than they know. For example, when the soldiers cry out, Hail, King of the Jews, they see themselves as mocking him without realizing that they speak true words about Jesus. He is the King of the Jews, and more than that, he's the King of all people. The same sort of thing is going on when when they say, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. There they are predicting his own resurrection and how he'll be saved from the grip of death and be raised from the dead within a matter of days. And yet, in speaking more truly than they know, they think that they're mocking him. And really what they're doing is they're confessing him in his power. Then also... When the chief priests say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They mock him for what they perceive as his lack of ability to save people without realizing that in that very moment he is affecting and completing his saving work for us by his death upon the cross. And this is the great irony of the whole situation. All of these mockers even in pouring out their hatred against him, are actually confessing the truth about him. And I think that this is a very apt picture of the entire condition of humankind in one sense. And here's how I see that. It's been put in this way by a Christian philosopher who was alive in the last century. He said that whenever we reject God, make arguments against God, and express our hatred of God in this way, for example we've seen in the most vehement books and writings of the of the so-called New Atheists, whenever we see this, said, it's a little bit like a child slapping his father in the face, except in order to reach his father's face, he has to first climb upon his father's knee. In other words, he's unable to reach the father unless the father somehow elevates him and brings him up to his level where he can then slap his father in the face. And There's something of this irony in the way that we reject God. You think, for example, how we try to build up rational arguments against him. We use our minds, we use our reason, and we so assemble a kind of weapon or artillery of arguments against the living God to either deny his existence or to deny his goodness without realizing that even as we do it, we're using minds and reason that he alone has given us, that we're made in his image, that we, in some sense, the pinnacle of God's created work, humankind, people, with rationality and reason are using minds that he's given us in order to try to overthrow him we're on his knee trying to slap him in the face the same is true when you think about your temptation to sin whenever we indulge lusts and illicit um, desires whenever we try and satisfy ourselves in these kinds of ways what are we doing We're climbing on his knee in order to slap him in the face because the very capacity that we have to enjoy pleasure in life is a gift from God. And the good things that we enjoy are made by him. The Satan has made nothing. It's all a gift from God. Now, He set the parameters within which we can enjoy the good things that he's made. And so when we cross those lines, it's like we're climbing on his knee in order to slap him in the face. And we could go on. It's the same when we speak lies about God. We express doubt about God. Our words are a gift from God. Language is a gift from God, and we use it to attack him. Or when we do bad things, all kinds of things, what are we doing? We don't realize that the very moment that we are attacking him, we're using the life that he's given us and that he sustains within us. And this is what I find so ironic and so tragic about these events that happened around Jesus at his crucifixion. Let me put it to you then very succinctly. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says about Jesus that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is what I find so amazing. That these men who attacked Jesus and mocked him and scorned him, the soldiers, the priests, the passers by, the, the robbers crucified on either side, all of them, every single one of them, was being upheld in that very moment by the will of Jesus, by the will of the Son. He is upholding all of creation by the word of his power, so that you do not have one more breath than he wills you to have. And even as they are mocking him and scorning him, they do not realize that they are dependent upon him for their next breath, for the life which they enjoy. This is the mocking, this is the ironic tragedy of what we're seeing take place at the cross, and it speaks deep into our hearts. It speaks of this fact, I think the first thing that God has to do in us, the first thing that he has to conquer in us is our pride. Because here they are thinking that they somehow won a victory over Jesus without realizing how much they depend upon him for their life and their breath. And we have an advantage because we're reading this passage and seeing all these things with an outsider's perspective looking on, much as you might look at those photographs I mentioned at the very beginning. You see them with an outsider's perspective and you see all of history of what was taking place in those moments and those warring ideologies captured in a particular photo and you see who the good ones are and the bad ones are and you see what needs to happen. Well, the same thing's happening here. You read this account and you realize how utterly tragic it is that we would ever assert ourselves in rebellion against God as though though we have anything that isn't given to us by him as though our lives aren't actually dependent on Him from moment to moment. And this is something to remember as we analyze our own hearts, as we think about our rebellion, as we think about the ways in which we're tempted to walk away from God, as we think about sin in our heart, we think about your whole condition if you're not a Christian. The fact that you haven't submitted your life to Jesus. You're very much like these people. Your whole life is a mockery of Him, without realizing that that life is a gift from Him. Now this brings me to my last point, which of course is the other side of the picture. When we focus our attention upon Jesus himself and what do we see being portrayed to us. And I think again what we're seeing here is something so essential to the nature and to the character of God in all of the biblical story, in all of the biblical narrative, boiled down into just one short episode put across to us in a vivid picture so that it will stamp itself on our mind and imagination. And what we're seeing here then is the patience and the long-suffering nature of God expressed in the actions of the Lord Jesus. Now, how do I see that? Look at what he does here. What does Jesus do? The way we can answer that, we can say, well, first of all, he's totally silent. He, in Isaiah 53, this was described by the prophet Isaiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see the submission of Jesus to the moment as these things washed over him and overcame him. He was silent. You can see how he's also quite compliant in the sense that he doesn't resist these things physically or in any other way. He goes along with it because he knows that he has something to accomplish. But more than his silence, more than his compliance, there's something else here which I want you to see, which is his divine restraint. Just hours earlier, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, we know that Peter had brought a sword and that he'd drawn his sword and cut off a servant's ear from the mob he would arrested Christ and at that particular moment when he tries to kind of foment a, sh- a small rebellion and try and, and start a fight so that Jesus might possibly escape, Jesus shuts it down immediately and he says to Peter, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? And I think this has to be borne in mind when we're witnessing what's happening to Jesus here in these moments. Jesus is experiencing a profound injustice as hatred is being poured upon him. And the thing that you have to see here above all is his absolute dignified patience and restraint that in those moments he does not fight back and that he submits himself to the actions of cruel men. And I think that the reason why we see Jesus in this way, what he was wanting to communicate to us through his conduct, has a couple of sides to it. One side is that it preaches to us about the patience of the living God. And this is, as I said to you, if this is a snapshot of the whole biblical story, this is what we see about God from the first pages of Genesis right the way through to the end. That even as humans, as, even as you and I, even as our whole race has rebelled against God repeatedly and angrily, God is continually revealed to us as a patient God who puts up with our rebellion and our anger and our hostility and our hatred in order that we might have the opportunity of encountering his mercy. Is what Peter says in 2 Peter. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as what some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is one of the characteristics about God that is revealed to us in the story of the receiving of the Ten Commandments, how Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets with the Ten Commandments and he found the people worshipping idols, a golden calf that they'd made. And as Moses goes back to meet with God again then please with God for mercy and intercedes for the people because of this real wickedness, God speaks to Moses and tells him a little bit more about his nature. And he reveals himself in this way. He says, says that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so it goes on describing how he keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and so on. The Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, in this picture, these few brief moments, is embodying for us by his conduct, by his restraint, by his acceptance of the treatment of uh, this human wickedness against him. He's revealing to us the patience of God. Reminds me of the story he told of the prodigal son, how that story opens with the young son saying to his father, give me my share of the property, which, of course, if you read between the lines, is saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance. And so he goes off and lives as though his father was dead. And what does the father exude all the way through that story? He exudes patience. So that even as we rail against God in our sin. And every act of rebellion and every wicked thought that ever crosses our hearts and minds, the Lord is patient toward us. And this is what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ here. But we see another facet to this. We also see his unwavering trust in the Father, that he knew all things would come to their rightful end and conclusion in the end. It reminded me of that line in in the Star Wars for a new hope when Obi-Wan, the great Jedi Master, faces off against his corrupted apprentice, Darth Vader. And they're fighting together. And Obi-Wan just says to him this immortal line, he says, if you strike me down, I'll become more powerful than you can ever imagine. And there's a sense in which Christ and his dignity of his person here, as he's being experiencing the full climax of human hatred and rebellion against God poured out upon his body there, and in the mockery and the scorn, as as humans try to commit deicide there and put, and kill God. There's a sense in which part of the reason why Christ is so restrained is because he understands that ultimately this will lead to his victory, to his vindication, to his. As- ascendancy to the father's right hand and his enthronement from a place in a place of glory and a place that will never be taken away from him and this is what the bible tells us in other places for example in 1 peter 2 as peter this apostle who was there remember reflects on the conduct that we've just read of jesus he says when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This same idea is expressed by Paul in Philippians chapter 2, when he describes this humiliation of Jesus at the cross. And he says that being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have we ever seen such humility that one so powerful as Jesus would allow himself to be treated in such a way? There has never been such humility expressed in any human life before or since. And this is what Paul wants us to understand. Why? He says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is God or is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What I'm hoping that you can see at this point, friends, is that as the Lord Jesus Christ in his patience endures this, he does so, but that his patience is not everlasting in the sense that there is ultimately a climax or a conclusion to this entire episode. The Lord Jesus did surrender himself to the hostility of men on that occasion. But he did so in the sure and certain knowledge that one day he would be vindicated and that God would judge the living and the dead. That he himself would become Lord of all things. That he would be at the Father's right hand. And that every knee would eventually perceive this and see this and bow. Not in mock homage like the soldiers do, but in absolute terror and adoration Fear before him as the living God. This is something that we have to see when we look at this particular image of the Lord Jesus Christ being so brutally murdered, essentially, is the right word. We have to look at our hearts and see, in what way do I, by my sin, by my rebellion, in what way do I mock him? even though he's given me life, even though his life sustains me? In what way am I fighting against him? What does he call me to? He calls me to surrender my life to him in humility. Whenever I rebel against God, I'm trying to get one over on God. I'm trying to, essentially, to kill God. But what this story does is it evokes within us the need, the desire to rather worship him and to recognize this wicked tendency within our own hearts and then to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize his lordship over us. He's patient. And his patience is so that we'll be drawn to repentance, so that we'll be drawn to him as Lord. And friends, I believe this is what we are called to do. This is what it means to become a Christian in the first place. And so some of you might look at this story and, and be captivated by this image of this, this man who died on behalf of our sins. I want to encourage you, you can switch sides, as it were, from being a mocker to being one who worships him. But this is also an image which continues to compel and to convict us for the rest of our Christian lives. Every time that we turn our backs on him and turn away, we join the mockers. But we're drawn back to him. We're drawn back to his lordship, to his dignity, and to his patience and his love. We're drawn to our Saviour so that we'll be known by Him and that we'll know Him and that He will experience His love poured out into our hearts in fresh ways. And so I want to encourage you to join with me in prayer. Living God, we thank You that in the gift of Jesus, we saw love personified. We see love take on flesh. We see the patience and the mercy of God expressed in the actions of one man. we also see the poison of our sin. We see the darkness and the corruption that has come into our hearts. The way in which the world brought about this great immune response against Jesus as though he were an enemy. And Lord, our hearts are condemned by this. We see that tendency in each one of us, Lord, how at times we turn our backs or raise our fists. We thank you for that patience, that restraint, the same patience and the same restraint that is being exercised and applied to our very lives right now and the fact that, Lord, you sustain us even when we sin, even when we turn away from you. We're in the same position, Lord. You hold back your hand. And so you open up the opportunity for mercy. And I pray, Lord, that even through my deficient explanation and articulation of these things, I pray, Lord, that the very simple picture of Christ there on the cross will be the thing that we remember today. It will be the thing that changes us. It will be the image that transforms us from the inside out, from haters of God to lovers of God, that wins us and renews us. And I pray these things in the name of your Son, our Saviour and Lord. Amen.